Hello there, welcome to Movement Scenes and Genres, or MSG10, as I like to call it. Uh, I'm Ewan, and if you're a regular listener, you will know that we, we have a guest on um, who talks you through a movement or a scene or a genre, and we play 10 songs. Um, if you're listening on our website, which is infrequency.co.uk, you'll be able to stream the episode with all the songs, or on our Mixcloud, that's mixcloud.com slash tempfans, um, or if you're listening on the normal pod player, there will be a link to, I'm going to say a Spotify playlist, but I'm not sure everything from today is going to be on Spotify. So you probably want to come over to uh, our homepage. Um, we've had previous episodes on the Hoboken sound, um, New York, no wave, the sort of funky dancey side, um, Manchester rafters, live gigs with Paul Hanley, uh, noise rock with J.R. Moores and sort of, acid jazz jazz revival in hong kong in the 1990s with singer zoe von hess um today's guest and i'm literally cribbing this from the bio he sent through earlier on today <laughs> is a, a writer a broadcaster composer uh based in brighton um presenter of the folkhampton weekly radio show um has written for the quietus you're the second person we've had on who's written for the quietus um, dark mountain new public thinkers and the morning star um was a was a singer for years with a mon- with a, the surname of tt um and i seem to remember once gave himself a review in the guardian guide uh, giving himself big ups is that correct we've got chris thorpe tracy how are you doing Ian? it's uh, lovely Go to on, be mate. here that is totally correct um, is that right did you did was it like your first gig or first job or something i think you posted it on twitter like years ago and i just remember yeah it. my first job was working at the press association doing the rock listings and we were the sort of supplier from a massive database of all the gig guides in the country all the various different gig guides would come from the same database which we maintained and so we would sell like the guardian guide or teletext or the mirror all these different gig guides but if you were you had to be quite special to get in the guardian guide because you could only tick the cool gigs for that bit of the, you know, because they didn't want just any old yeah. crap. And I just started my solo career. So this is the late nineties, like 97, 98. And, uh, I just learned my trade. I was a data entry, data inputter at the, uh, at the PA doing, so ba- basically getting faxes and letters of every form of like entertainment in the country sent to us. And then we'd enter it on this database. And I quickly realized that if I ticked my gigs, for the Guardian Guide, they'd go in the Guardian Guide. So I wrote in the description a really florid description about how amazing I was, like <laughs> edgy, new, brilliant, edgy, new, alternative folk artist playing three-stringed electric guitar, which is what I was doing at the time, playing the pubs of London, um, low on the bill to 15 people, and got this uh, thing printed in the Guardian Guide. I was so chuffed. And then, of course you can just double that back and put it on all your flyers. So suddenly all my flyers had the same description, brilliant, blah, 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 Guardian Guide. And everyone was like, wow, the Guardian Guide thinks you're amazing. So yeah, that was great. <laughs> uh, I've only we could get away with that. We could probably can get away with that shit these days. We'll work something out. Um, so Chris, um, as everybody knows, we usually go through one movement or one scene or one genre but we're not quite doing that today. And we were talking before we started. We don't even really know what to call this episode. I mean, no, I'm too untidy. I'm today? very sorry. I'm such an untidy person. I think it's, I think it's sixties protest. Although half the songs aren't from the sixties, but it's the roots of, it's the roots of the folk protest thing. Um, I didn't want to, like I was suggesting to you protest song just generally as a catch all. But the problem with that is there's no genre or musical sort of thing is, and I'm very much of the opinion that people around nowadays who go, oh, protest song is, you know, Dylan and some of the artists that we're going to play on this program. I'm not in that camp. I'm definitely in the camp of hip hop and the formation by Beyonce is one of the great protest songs of the last 10 years. And that I come from it from that side rather than the 
nothing, nothing, nothing. Finger in the yeah, ear. Or, hey, or no, Billy no, Bragg no, is yeah. everything or whatever. Although I love Billy Bragg, but it's so even though I'm in that camp for the purposes of this thing, I think what we're doing is trying to sort of mold the formation of protest song in the sixties. Does that sounds ridiculous? When you sent me through the list and as you said, I was kind of expecting all Bob Dylan type stuff or, or Billy Braggs or whatnot. Um, I looked at it and I went, huh, I could even put Public Enemy on this list. You know, there was, I suddenly realized we were talking more about the, yeah, the evolution of protest songs. Listener, that's what we're doing today, by yeah. the way, the evolution of protest that's songs. It, that's it, that's um, it. Is. But it's also <laughs> multiple movements. Each song is almost representing of movement. So it fits into the M from MSG, which is pretty sweet. I'm happy with that. Um, so if Beyonce's, if Beyonce has one of the best representations of a modern day protest song, what, what would define a protest song? So this is the thing. There's two ways, aren't there? There's, you're either going to define it by that. It's a song that is protesting about a topic or an issue, a specific. So it's the content, it's a lyrical content. And then, then you've got any kind of music whatsoever as long as someone is protesting about a topic that they're that they're unhappy about or telling a story that creates a social issue you know if you if you tell a story and it highlights something an injustice or a social problem or whatever um then that's a protest song that's that's what at one end of the scale and then at the other end of the scale you've got kind of like strummy sort of folky acoustic music played and sung by people who aren't as technically good as real folk musicians. <laughs> and nowadays <laughs> they tend to be white tattooed middle-class men with beards singing what's kind of like punky folk. And uh, I mean, I speak, I speak as one of those, so I have the right to, but uh, uh, you know, one of, one of the sort of, one of the sort of things that booted me out of making music and made me sort of have to move on from my, my own music career was realizing that I was just, I disliked what I'd become, and, and there was something of that in there. That so, like you become the sort of cliche that, it, yeah. I mean, we've even got a song later on that I think that sort of half addresses that issue of ridiculing what you are. But but we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah, but you're right. I think you're this right. is a good this is a good time to get started. Yeah. Um, um, there's going to be a lot of basically. I'm I've realised that by looking at the, this list of, of tracks, there's going to be a lot of. So it'd be like, so Chris, who's the artist and what was, what was, what was going on? Um, we, as we tend to do on this, although it's purely by default rather than any design, we're, we're going chronologically um, in order and we're starting way back in the, oy, where, where, are we, where are we going back to? This is like the 20s and the 30s through into the war. Um, so I started with Paul Robeson and Joe Hill. Uh, could have gone with like a much more famous place to start might be Billy Holiday's Strange Fruit or yeah. Miss Otis Regrets or something like that, where you've got songs about lynching and, you know, ra- mm-hmm. incredibly violent racial injustice inflicted on black people in America throughout yeah. the uh, 19th and 20th century. Well, basically forever. Um, from up and up until and from yeah. Yeah, constant. Paul Robeson's a fascinating sort of, um, Paul Robeson's the one uh, with the voice. Yes, right? he's got that big, deep voice, and he was an act. He was an actor and a yeah, singer, huge, or, and or a huge he, mainstream yeah. star, like a huge film star singing. So he starts both at the same time in the NFL as like a football hero, all American football hero, and at Columbia Law School at the same time. So he becomes this. He's like, and then once he moves out of that, he gets into what's called the Harlem Renaissance. And that's singing and dancing and acting. So that's much more like he becomes a theatre performer and a film star. So he was a, a lawyer, a pro football yep. star, a singer, a dancer, an actor, and then later a campaigner. Yes, and by the, by the 20s, he's touring the world and he's a huge, huge name. And then later on, what happens is he, he gets caught up in the, the old uh, McCarthy anti-communist stuff and that wrecks his career. But prior to that, he's this huge name. And funnily enough, he's a huge name in working class community, what kind of dominantly white working class communities in Britain as well. So he's, he's traveled to Britain by the twenties and then he sings to, he, he um, sings to the miners, especially in Scotland in 1949. There's this amazing on YouTube. You can find this amazing bit of Pathé news of Paul Robeson, the film star coming to the coming to sing for Nottingham, different miners around Britain, but the footage of him singing to the the Scottish 
because he's a unionist. So he's, this is very much, so this is where it connects to Joe Hill, which is the song I chose is, is this is, the, this is like the, the early 20th century union stuff, the rise of the unions and the protest movement that is about eulogizing the working man and power of a union and that sort of stuff. And Joe Hill is one of those sort of songs. It's a, so Joe Hill, the song is from 1925. It's an Alfred Hayes poem. And he, and it was set to music a decade later. And it's, it's that, it's about a union activist. So it's, it's the kind of okay, okay, yeah. So when when I saw his name on the list, my instant thought was okay, yeah, because he had he had to deal with a lot of issues with race and acting. I wasn't quite sure which, but, but the man had his finger in a lot of. I'm going to say protest. Yes, pies definitely. Feel yeah. Horrible so he's he's dealing that. with racial injustice, but he's also his career is so he 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 made his income on the road, right, and toured the world as this big star, and then when the McCarthy which which hunt the kind of anti-communist stuff happened he was they took his part basically the united states he refused to testify he refused to back down from public things he'd said in the past because he was a leftist he was a radical leftist and you were sort of put in front of the cameras and on trial and you were told you know back down from what you've said you know tell us that you don't really believe it anymore and it's wrong and he refused so they took his passport so he couldn't tour overseas so he was stuck in the united states um, right through until the late fifties, he he wasn't able to to travel. So he'd been he was still traveling in nineteen forty nine. So I think it must have been it must have been like six five or six years that he couldn't something like that anyway that he okay, couldn't wow. couldn't leave okay. the United States, couldn't travel, couldn't work nearly as much, um, and yeah, was sort of fighting for his ability to keep working. Okay, well, it's probably as good a time as any. Um, as I've said before, and I promise I won't say again, if you're on our homepage or, or on the Mixed Cloud, you're now going to hear Paul Robeson and um, but a voice that could only be his um, singing Joe Hill. If you're on the podcast, you'll hear something go, bloop, 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 and we'll be back in a sec. This is not the first time I've said this this week. If you listen to one of our other podcasts, um, I'll be saying this. Often, um, <laughs> I don't ask all the questions I'm supposed to ask and I move on. And then I have to sort of backtrack whenever we come back to the conversation. Um, I did hastily uh, move Chris on a little bit when we were talking about Paul Robeson um, because I forgot to get his, 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 his nan. Your, your nan loved him. Oh, that was, yeah, no, it's not your fault. I'm just being an idiot and not telling you things. <laughs> my grandma absolutely loved. So one of the things I discovered in adulthood, not when I was a kid growing up, was that my grandma, who came from a Welsh mining community, and my, my grandpa went briefly went down the pit in South Wales, and my grandma absolutely worshipped Paul Robeson. But, and I'd not made the connection, of course, until later. But yeah, he's, it's the popularity of that track is is... For us now, we don't, he's not, it's not that he's forgotten, but he's not thought of necessarily as one of the great yeah. super famous kids don't necessarily know who he is. But for example, um, Robeson's the, the third most popular up until 2014, Robeson's the third most popular ever pop singer on Desert Island Discs. That's yeah, He's just a huge figure, like a, a behemoth. Okay. And, and, and we've talked while we were putting this together about some threads that sort of go through um, our next track is also union, union -y. Yes, I'm, I'm going to say uniony and unionish over the next in the next half an hour, and, and it's the the almanac singers. Yeah. I almost said sisters. Then um, this is this was more like the kind of song that I expected us to be looking at um, yeah. the almanac singers and which side are you on and those sides are obviously what related to again what? working working union struggle and the fight for workers rights and and again left kind of classic leftism especially around wartime where it all gets very confused once once uh we've got a second world war where we're fighting fascists but we're we're also then the cold war is emerging from that so yeah. uh the almanac singers i included um, mainly because of who they are, which is it's it's they only lasted for three years. They are formed in 1940, so they're a wartime band, uh, albeit oh, American. Okay. So they're not an American in the war, but they're once the war has started. <laughs> and it's Lee Hayes, Pete Seeger, and Woody Guthrie, all very young, 
forming oh, forming wow. their first band. That. It's like the first indie band of of Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. So the, tra- so the Traveling Wilburys before yeah. at the beginning, yeah. and it's before they, this band will go on later to become this a band called the Weavers, who were massive in the fifties, like huge folk pop crossover band that but that was Pete Seeger's band in the fifties. Um, which side are you on? It's from their second album, which is called Talking Union, which came out in July of nineteen forty one. And it's a really challenging, it's a challenge to people who haven't got involved in the struggle. You know, which side are you on? It does what it says on the tin. Uh, there's a great story about how they were formed, or at least how they got to okay. know each other. There's this actor called Will Gear, who was, he was Grandpa Walton in the TV show, The Waltons. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I can, I know, I know who and he is. <laughs> he was a famous uh, leftist at the time. And he, he was... Will Gear, Grandpa Walton radicalized Woody Guthrie in the first place and introduced all these people. So Will Gear's sort of uh, place in Please tell me there's an episode. There's an episode of the Waltons they didn't show where Grandpa Walton is radicalizing. He's <laughs> yeah, running around radicalizing all America's <laughs> folk communists. It's amazing. He he organizes this massive event called the Grapes of Roth Night. And they're doing and they're doing like um it's like a benefit gig for migrant workers. And that's where that's where these these singers who are still very young guys at the time who'll go on to be the kind of icons of folk protest that's where they hang out and get to know each other i i think it's also something that's worth looking mentioning the fact that it's american unions more i mean yes there were conflicts with unions in the uk but post-world war ii the idea of a labor movement still had strength whereas in america there was a lot of union busting and you know proper dirty tactics going on right yeah and often it is physically it's very very physically violent i mean the stuff we we see in i guess in the 80s with the miners strike doesn't even scratch the surface of what the car manufacturers and the big the big american corporations were doing 50 years earlier i mean it's it's um their battle lines aren't there really huge and challenge to anyone because if you because of this binary thing of which side are you on anyone who just wants to get along has to either be union side. I mean, I sound like a bit equivocating. I promise I'm d- deeply on one side of this fight, but. I, I, well, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm just looking at the list of songs you've sent through. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but um, well, it's probably a good time to decide which side we're on. Um, okay. So we've, we've, we've looked at, unions and miners etc etc and we i mean the last one was more what i would have expected to be classic protest songs but the young woody guthrie would obviously have made that stamp um but protest songs also came across you know in the mississippi delta and other and areas like that um black blues and there was it wasn't just and i'm going to say traditionally white unions having issues as a working the working man in in the early half of the 20th century there was obviously still other struggles going on i mean what we're we looking at next well big bill brunsey is uh, a delta blue it's a great Brilliant. fucking name yeah, amazing oh. <laughs> um born in 1903 he was so he by the time we're talking about he's i mean he's dead by 58 so so um so although i'm trying to go chronologically it doesn't quite work but yeah. I really wanted to dive back into the roots of, so he comes from blues, which comes in turn from spirituals and gospel music. And the connection is the song, John Henry is still a kind of song eulogizing the hardworking man. Uh, but it's not so specific about unions. So it's a story song. So John Henry is this steel driver. So he's using a big hammer and he's driving these steel pegs in. Um, and he has a race with a machine that's doing it. So they've he's he's fight, he's racing technology. So they've built a machine that can do what the human can do. And John Henry becomes a legend by racing the machine and beating it, but then he immediately dies as soon as he's won. He w- wins the race with the machine and he dies with his hammer in his hand. It's we history doesn't quite know. It's not, you know, it's a myth rather than a historical figure, but it's that kind of idea of pulling out a folk song a kind of mythological eulogizing character, which is perfect with the blues as well. Uh, not so overtly political and not, not so tied to kind of the union battle, but John Henry went on to become, you know, it becomes a, a standard for the whole scene for everyone that's doing this stuff. And there are 
tons of different versions of it and people are doing it to this day. It still gets sung. A lot of the stuff that we've been listening to today is totally new to me. The next was a name I knew, but didn't really know what she sounded like. And when it came on, I thought, oh, it's like Karen Dalton, but with a different voice. And we've got Joan Baez um, singing Silver Dagger, which my cursory Wikipedia was basically, it's, could be a, it's a classic song. Maybe there's a bunch of different versions of it. Probably American, could have been English. It didn't tell me a lot. Um, why is this in the protest thing? In some ways, I've just picked a, a typical Baez song because it's Baez who's the important figure rather than the song. Ah, okay. Um, Silver Dagger, it's 1960. It's the first track of her first record. So she's 19. She's just showed up. Um, influence, again, influenced by spiritual music and by the singer Odetta, particularly. She was really inspired by, but she's this very young folk singer who's not yet radical or not yet singing topical songs, as it were, apart from spirituals, which have some element of topicality about them. And she bridges the gap between the kind of folk stuff that the weavers are doing and the sort of 50s, very rooted in the 50s style folk and being an enormous pop star. So very quickly she breaks through and has three smash hit albums. She's a huge, she's, she's incredibly compelling. People love her. She becomes a huge name. And I think that's a little bit been forgotten by history that by at the very beginning of the sixties, like for example, she's on the, Jen Byers is on the cover of Time magazine at a time when hardly any musicians at all were on the cover of Time. She's this. So yeah, I, I knew the name. That's it. I knew the name, but I didn't know anything about it. But it was just one of those names that was floating around my yeah. head. And but then what she does is was she the first? Sorry, was she, do you think was she the first sort of female? I'm going to say I'm going to say that I'm going to say female pinup just because it sort of fits the era. Female pinup of the the. The folk movement. I definitely think she's the first. She she almost you could almost argue that Baez invents the sixties for two two reasons. One, because she pulls together all these threads of being uh, a woman singer songwriter. What we think of now as a singer songwriter, like strumming, singing songs. Well, I say strumming. She's a brilliant finger picking guitarist, but playing what are kind of pop songs at the time, but have f f the roots in folk music. She also is. Uh, very like uh, becomes very very popular mainstream popular and the third thing is she discovers pretty much Bob Dylan so people don't realise the extent to which she brought him out of this he's still playing tiny clubs and he's he's becoming this cool cult figure but he's still very very young and hasn't broken so through so was she big by that yeah, point was she's she big already the massive that's oh. the that's the bit that is the kind of magic that people like if we were in 1961 then Dylan is this annoying kid that Joan Byers keeps bringing on stage and her fans really <laughs> it found it really annoying that she would like, she'd, she'd bring him up and they do songs together. And then she'd literally let him do two or three songs just totally on his own on stage. And they'd be like, well, this, I came to a Joan Baez concert. What's going on? And but obviously with the benefit of hindsight, she, she had nurtured this kid and he, it was a mutual, I mean, they were a couple for years on and off. Um, there's, I'm, so I should also really strongly flag up that I'm in no way a Bob Dylan expert and there are Bob Dylan experts out there. So, well, we will, we will get back. We will get to Dylan, well, but I will I'll be very, you, I will ask you 10 questions about Bob I'll have Dylan. I'll to tread really to, carefully worry. around Bob Dylan because you know what Dylan people are like. But uh, um, I'll just see if I've, I'll just see if I've got a recording of someone shouting yeah. Judas. I can just blare at you. <laughs> so so she, she'd not really done topical songs until he comes along. So he does influence her, but, but also she is really helping him out and they are a couple and, uh, to an extent. Is, is Joan, is, is Joan Byers, she, is she still yes, alive? Yes, she's still alive. She's, um, in fact, she's still performing and and recording. She, her last show, her shows were curtailed by the pandemic. Would you believe? So she's done sixty I, I years. That's amazing. And she's still a big, like, not performing small gigs. She does big shows, big theatre shows. She can tour around the world. She's done more than thirty records. She's done records in several different languages. There's some. There are some amazing other bits about the later Joan Baez career. That for, for example, and this will interest you being a tech guy, that in the early 80s, she meets another young guy. She's now about 40, and she meets a young guy in his 20s who she has a Please, passionate relationship with. Is, is, is it yes, Steve it's Jobs? Steve Jobs. 
<laughs> yeah, she's and she's an incredible activist as well. So once she gets topical off Dylan, off the young Dylan, she becomes a massive part of the 60s folk protest scene. She is at many, many protests. She's arrested. She she meets she meets her her I think he's a her husband, David. I can't remember his surname. She meets him in jail. So she's a really radical activist at the same time as doing album after album of beautiful acoustic music. And so in, for me, she binds the threads together. And I'd almost want to say Joan Byers invents the 60s. So while we were talking about Joan Byers, I had to stop you a little bit because we were moving on um, to, well, I mean, Joan Byers discovered Bob Dylan. So it almost seems right that the next track is Bob Dylan, um, which would be what I would have expected to be on this list. I mean, there's a lot on this list that surprised me. I would have questioned no Bob Dylan in a sort of history of protest and folk protest and protest songs, etc. Um, so we're going, what, full Cold War now with, with what, Masters of War? Yeah, which is early Bob before he's gone electric. It's absolutely fantastic. I kind of think it's... Judas! <laughs> <laughs> kind of think it, like already, what, what Dylan does that's amazing is he is progressing the sound already you know there's that famous story about i don't know if it's true or not about at newport folk festival where he does go electric where pete seeger tries to use a pair of shears to cut the the power cable because he's so offended by dylan going electric so there is a sense of a new new generation and stuff is changing really fast and in this song even though it's an acoustic what you might call acoustic folk song it's so minimal, like he doesn't change the chord for ages and he just is so direct and poetic and in your face that it is taking um, the form was this, further was this, on. Was this, an, was this another case of, because a lot of his earlier stuff, and like this was what, what on the freewheeling, freewheeling Bob Dylan, a lot of his early stuff and a lot of other folk singer stuff, the tunes weren't necessarily theirs, right? These, they were traditional folk tunes that have been going down the years and maybe they added a chord here yeah. and a chord there. I think I was reading out of this. This was one of yeah, those. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so, yeah, so he doesn't do a lot. He sort of it builds and builds and builds a, a little bit. What, what's it about? Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's on the surface, obviously, there's anti-war stuff, but it's about, it's about power. It's about the invisible forces that control people's lives and how we, how we, how we kind of fall for it which, you know, we still do. Um, I love it. I love the, do you know what? It kind of almost makes me think of Velvet Underground because it's so relentless okay. and minimal rather than being, so in a way, although it is, yeah, he's taking traditional ideas and traditional melodies and messing with them and adding his own lyrics and all of that stuff. It feels like something new. It feels like it's just, it's got a, it's almost got a droniness to it that you haven't really heard in, in folk or pop music at that point, which I adore. Also, it's probably worth saying that he's a character, isn't he? Bob Dylan is, is a fictional, is a, is a, Bob Dylan is the fictional manufacturing of a persona and a character by the guy performing him right from the beginning. And he's pilfering from Woody Guthrie and he's stealing. I mean, there's the other thing that he's actually, he steals people's actual records as well as stealing all their ideas. And he, he is creating that persona. Like it, Nowadays, it would be Lana Del Rey. It would be, you know, when a pop star is a is a manufactured thing by themselves, not by it. It's not like managers told him to do it, but he created a thing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for a while, he was also this, he didn't know this, but briefly, um, Bob Dylan and our other podcast, Every Fandoms, were vying for sixth place on um, Apple podcast uk music <laughs> history and we kept leapfrogging him and i kept tweeting him and going in your face bob in your face and i surprisingly never responded. <laughs> that would have been um, amazing if he'd replied though wouldn't it that'd have been so great <laughs> um and yeah so this was freewheeling bob dylan this was early bob dylan um we are not experts on bob dylan by anything but we are probably at the point where protest folk is now officially the 60s yeah and now, this is this is this is ground zero. It really now. is, isn't it? Yeah, Bob's taken over. He transcends everything, doesn't he? And becomes the fulcrum of everything else. Yeah. Um, all right. So probably a great time to take a small segue um, and go to Masters of War. And well, if you came for some protest <laughs> folk, here's your protest folk. <laughs> 
All right, so we're about midway, and I'm, I'm just going to ask you a question. Um, it's all very American at the moment, and I know that this is an incredibly big catch-all um, that we're sort of trying to umbrella that we're trying to cover things into, and obviously we can't fit too much into here. But is there a particular reason? And um, was it only going on in America? Was it happening in other countries at the time? Um, I think. Dude, give me your rationale, Chris. Give me your rationale. I think this movement is a is an American movement, especially in the sixties. And I think maybe a broader answer is culture. American culture by the sixties, American culture is really dominant worldwide, anyway. Um, and it would be hard to think of if if I come home to the United Kingdom and I start trying to think of protest music, it starts later and. And also, yeah. so for example, at the point where Dylan is a huge star, what what we're bringing to the table is the Beatles and the the, the Liverpool, the the Mersey beat sound, and then rock emerges from from that kind of almost that confluence of like is a confluence the right word that that mer- merging of American folk rock sensibility of what Dylan does, and then what happens after him, and and the rise of sort of soul music, and then from from Britain, the kind of beat boom, those two things collide to make the rock of the seventies. So, but if you think about is, the is Beatles, there a, is there also, but is there a thing of, sorry, to no, jump no, no. In, uh, just otherwise I was going to forget. Um, is there a thing of, I mean, a lot of folk and protest folk has existed for phew, like hundreds of years. I mean, if um, in Ireland, but in Ireland, there were a lot of songs about, British occupation and, and subjugation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but America had this tradition that maybe came out of um, slavery and and, um, and on one side and, and independence against the Britain on another side. And I was talking to someone about this separately the other day. And it's horrible to say, but England, specifically England as a nation, is, is quite unique in that it <laughs> – it hasn't been subjugated, invaded, and colonized for over a thousand years, and so it hasn't had someone's boot, someone else's boot on its neck, you know, in in that sort of way. So I, I, I have some Irish friends who said, "Where's all the great history of British folk?" And I was like, "Well, what would we railing against? We've got some York, great Yorkshire colliery bands, and you know, you'd have these sort of folk songs here and there, but there wasn't a tradition of railing against because." We were the ones people were railing against for so long, and in America, uh, slaves were railing against obviously slavery, wanting to be free, and they had that great song, his, uh, musical history, and you had the U- rise of the unions and sort of anti-Britishness in in, in in the birth of the U.S. So maybe that I don't know. I'm thinking out loud. Maybe that could be a reason why it, it started stronger in a place like the U.S. rather than the and UK. And that works even within the United Kingdom when you look at the fact that Scottish. Irish and and even regional folk traditions are much stronger away from power bases. So I think you're totally right. I think that's a really uh, spot on analysis of the problem with bringing our music home. So um, I was what I was going to say about the connection between the Beatles and Dylan is that at the point where the belie- the beat the the point. Blah, blah, blah. The point where the Beatles start singing topic related songs, it's Taxman. It's they've got rich and they yeah. don't want to pay so much tax. <laughs> yeah. you know, so that's on. Is that that's Revolver? That, yeah, that's right? Taxman's on Revolver. Tax and that's revolver, the, roughly yeah. the same point where you know that's only a year away from. That's only a year after Dylan's singing Masters of War, really. So, or a couple of years. Wow. So, what what is our tradi- What are we bringing to the table? I suppose Springsteen loved the animals more than the Beatles. He said they were brilliant because they were uglier. And they sing songs about escape, like working class escape. So they sang, we got to get out of this place, songs like that. And so he's got that thing of those, you, you almost get away from the bands that are the big, huge superstars and you find that. But what you, but I mean, partly what I don't know enough about the history of um, English rock and roll, uh, but also English folk. We did have a folk revival here in the 60s. And it was brilliant and wonderful, and it brings us things like Waterson Carthy and the and Fairport Convention, and it brings us loads of amazing music. And they all do some political material, but it doesn't coalesce as being that that's what they're doing. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, possibly. I mean, I'd say possibly that only really hit the UK on a big front is 
when you had CN, like the rise of CND and stuff later on, you know, when there was and the minor strike, Thatcher. To, so you then the you get Bragg strikes, and exactly. Chumbawamba and all sorts of things coming out of that. But again, by that time, culture has moved on, so they're never going to be quite so mainstream big. They're they're operating in a different sphere by then. Okay, so well, we'll we can move on to the next track and the next round. Well, I, I was having a look when you sent the list through and. <laughs> lyrically this is one that's aged badly mm. i'm gonna say um but also this is one of the ones i briefly mentioned at the start when we look at the idea of uh, well, well, what's the track first so this of all? is phil oaks singing love me i'm a liberal phil oaks being uh, a radical leftist protest singer of the same era of bob dylan but with much more conventional music making you know much less of a genius but but probably more more radical conventional politics. So this is uh, they they cross paths. They were Phil Oaks was never going to be a mainstream star in the same way, but he is remembered very fondly as a as a a pioneer of political protest. Yeah, and and this song this song was almost sort of a weird one because yes, it's a a left wing singer singing about being left wing, but also very critical of a lot of people who who claim to be who who or who are left wing right there's a there's a line i've got the quote here of when he introduces it something um uh, outspoken group on many subjects 10 degrees to the 10 degrees to the left of center in good times 10 degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally and this is an argument that follows all the way through to go later in the later in the decades when they're talking about school kids being bussed in from one district to another. And people go, oh, no, no, I'm all for it. Wait, my yeah. school? Hmm, not sure about this. Um, also, it's quite controversial now. Um, and a lot of people, I know I did some brief Wikipedia, look, um, some brief Wikipedia. Um, my favorite line on, on Wikipedia is several, several cover versions have been recorded, almost always with updated lyrics. Performers include Jella Biafra, Kevin Devine, Nacho Vegas, Carly Cosgrove and some guy called Chris T. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons I chose it. I love the song. The reason the lyrics have dated so badly is because he's, he's telling specific stories about the time name checking people. So in a way it's an example of bad political songwriting in that he just tells you a load of bits about people that no one remembers. And uh, so he's <laughs> the people he's slagging off in it often by name, we just don't remember them and that makes the song valueless. So that's why lots of people have updated it. I, I love okay. the song because I I loved it because I also updated it. Although I have, I have a kind of slight, I didn't do a cover. So what people like the Dead Kennedys and, and Chumbawamba and lots of people did was they took the same song with the same melody and, the, and most of the same lyrics and kind of just updated the names to, to involve modern stories. And I did do that, but I also changed i i wrote a different song taking the same chorus line so mine's melodically different you know because i'm a capitalist and i wanted more songwriting royalties and so i wasn't writing a cover <laughs> and so i was really careful not to not to do a cover of the phil oak song so you're the exact type of liberal he's singing am, yeah. about in love me i'm a liberal <laughs> it's funny because for a well, long while a like we didn't it was hard to understand it but funnily enough in the it, what it reflects is that battle, like in this country, the battle in labour nowadays, the kind of, um, in the UK, the the left and the centre left of labour is just at each other's throats the whole time. And Phil Oakes is fully invested in that kind of struggle. So he is talking partly about class, partly about middle class progressives, but largely about people who are like allies, hand-wringing allies about certain things like all oh, poverty is bad, but people who don't want to actually change the system. That's his... That's his beef. And it's kind of quite rare in, in folk protest that he gets so specific and it means it dates badly, but also it means it um, pins his flag to the mast a little bit more directly than a lot of, a lot of singers. Did he get criticised a lot? Because I imagine at this point, um, a lot of this type, this type of movement, these types of songs are being taken in by, uh, as you would have said, the, the, the centre-left or the, or the middle classes or the dinner party sets or, or whatever, what, what have you. Was this a bit of a, oh, were they talking about me? I think there was. I also think he perhaps wasn't great. In, he's great, but he's not great enough to, to get into those rooms. And they've already got 
by that time they've got Joni Mitchell and they've got Neil Young coming through and they've got, you know, 60s music. There's lots of stuff to listen to. So he, I think, um, I think Phil Oakes remained within his world. He didn't break through so much to a, a really mainstream audience. Um, there's an interesting comparison. There's, there's a, both Dylan and Phil Oakes wrote a song about the same boxer. So in 1963, there's this world championship boxer called Davy Moore and he's won, he's defended his world championship five times. He's like a, a you know, a, the greatest boxer. He's doing really well. And then uh, in March, 1963, he fights Sugar Ramos and he fights him on the 21st of March and he's dead by the 25th because he's been beaten so badly. And they both write uh, pretty soon afterwards. Both of them have written or yeah, relatively soon afterwards. Both those artists, Bob Dylan and Phil Oaks, have written songs about Davy Moore. So Phil Oakes writes a song called Davy Moore and he just tells the story of Davy Moore in a kind of chronological, basic folk protest storytelling way that's pretty standard. And Bob Dylan writes the same song about Davy Moore. He's called it Who Killed Davy Moore? And he does a much more arty, clever thing where he he basically goes to each group of people invested in that boxing match. So the, the the various fighting organization the 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 crowd the tv people the the referee and they all say it's not my fault he's killed and he and dylan looks at them one at a time and it's a fascinating way of comparing their comparing their um relative how how much artifice or or kind of creative um license or not license create just create what level of creativity they bring to this topic and I mean, you're really, you're really not selling Phil Oaks pretty, very well by no, this I'm being point. Really harsh. He's brilliant. So, so it's really, it's really bad. Well, 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 it's probably a good time to to listen to someone who's not as good as the last <laughs> person we listened to. <laughs> okay, so that was Phil Oaks, um, but now we're moving on to somebody who. <laughs> we're, we, my wife and I were driving up the, the hill to the village where we lived the other day. And I said, what do you want to listen to? Anything. We're streaming it from home. What do you want to listen to? And she went, Nina Simone. And we blared out Nina Simone for about five minutes. I'd been to a mate's 50th all afternoon, so I was a bit drunk and I got a bit teary because of how good it was. And we are moving on to, in my opinion, one of the greatest singers of the 20th century, artists, performing artists of the 20th century, um, which is obviously. Um, Nina Simone. Um, why Nina? I mean, why not Nina? But why Nina? Why is she fitting into this list? Because of civil rights and because of the turn that protest takes because it's become... So so far, Big Bill Breensy aside, it has basically been people protesting. Now there's an element of performativeness about it because they are comfortable themselves and and civil rights is happening and it's exploding at this point in the 60s and i i wanted to play nina simone mississippi goddamn partly because it it's one of her own songs so nina simone is in many in much of her material is arrangements and covers of other people's material and she is probably better thought of as a singer and a performer a compelling brilliant peerless and i agree with you you know one of the greatest performers in history but she's also a phenomenal songwriter and she described mississippi goddamn as her first civil rights song it's um she first it came out in night and this is this is jim crow era yeah this is 1964 that we're talking about um it's on an album called live in concert so it's uh, the album was taken from recording some carnegie hall and she'd just signed to Phillips. She'd got a new record deal, basically. And it coincides with her becoming a lot more openly radical. And for the rest of the, well, for the rest of her career, but but definitely for the remainder of the 60s. Was, was there anything that caused, was there anything that caused this this radicalism or was it just over, over time? I don't know. I don't know enough to know if there was a specific triggers. I think it's definitely that she's writing more of her own material. It's definitely that the history of, the you know america is catching fire and the civil rights movement is coming alight and getting a lot more energy um and 
and then perhaps her own circumstances where her success is a little bit more so, like she's on solid ground with her career so she can almost she can afford to do that at that point uh that might not be right but i think that's what's going on um and well i mean i did i did read when i was i mean you know obviously when you sent the list of songs through some things i researched more than others um and 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 this was this was a song she wrote in something like 30 minutes or an hour um in response to some uh, racially motivated murders and that when the the albums were initially sent out or the or the sing the, the, the vinyl was sent out to a lot of southern radio stations they just smashed them in they smashed them and sent yeah. them back so they didn't it wasn't just not playing it it was we're going to actually trash this record and send it back to you so you can't play it and we've we've wasted your money um she did sing it on tv though at the time steve allen's show which was a big you know late night entertainment show did put her on so it did get a lot of attention well, it's also a very, I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound like a, if you, if you weren't listening to the lyrics, it's a very jaunty show tune. Uh, yeah. You know, like for most, yeah. for most it's of like it. Yeah, it's like it's major key upbeat, isn't it? But there's another thing about that, which is the swear word. So we, when we listen with the, with the benefit of modern sort of ears, we don't necessarily clue to the fact that saying God damn is an incredibly potent swear word, especially in the South. So the South had an excuse when they're, breaking the records obviously it's racism but they can go this is offensive because it's saying it's saying fuck our state basically or fuck the our way of life rather than the actual specific politics it's um she wrote it about the murders of emmett till and medgar evers and funnily enough medgar evers is named in the the phil oaks song as well so it's an interesting comparison again of how a song can date or not date because she's singing inspired by the same event but of course, Mississippi Goddamn is timeless. Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't dream of needing to to update it now. You would just perform it and dream that you could perform it a tenth as well as she did. But it's it's uh, about those murders and it's about uh, that there was a, a burning of a church. So it's the same same incident of burning a church that inspires the Gene Hackman film later, um, Mississippi Missi- Burning. Missis- I was just thinking Mississippi yeah. Burning. Yeah. And so she's she's engaging with the civil rights movement directly for the first time and she'll continue to do so. And so like she wrote like young gifted and black is, I mean, it's a much more positive song, but it's clearly a song written with, with liberation in mind, isn't it? And, uh, for women, she wrote, she wrote, um, that are oh, the wonderful, you know, ain't, ain't got no, I got life. That song, which is, it pops up everywhere now. Yeah. Oh Best my God. Song. Now you just listen. There's just two people going. It's the best. That's the best song ever written that contains the word boobies. By the way, <laughs> and, and neither of us can remember what it's called. So it's probably a good time. It is called. It is called. To, uh, I ain't got no. I got life. I think. Ah, I think. That was it. Um, yeah, that yeah, sounds but, right. But Mississippi, right. goddamn, yeah. She, she. It's almost like she just stakes her claim. She sticks her. I'm trying to think of a. So I suddenly think of Gandalf. I can't think of an appropriate analogy, but she just goes, I am going to do this. So this is, I am, I am this radical. I'm going to do this stuff. Have you seen the film Summer of Soul? Um, yeah. Yeah. I caught it. I caught it while I had COVID. Oh, yeah. Cause <laughs> that's the first ever performance of Young Gifted and Black, isn't it? Which is amazing. Oh, wow. I, I, yeah, yeah, I yeah, it was. That it was, was it my favourite film last year. That's extraordinary. But yeah, her set, her, her 20 minute or whatever it is, little chunk of that film is, catches her really in her pomp. And that's that's about five years after this. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mentioned, I asked earlier about why it was so US centric, and we're taking a bit of a turn from there with Victor Jara. Victor Jara, yeah. um, that's a Spanish name. Where where, where are we going? Victor Jara is a Chilean um, singer songwriter and creative artist. Uh, who was active in the 60s and in the early 70s. And I sort of wanted to choose one of his songs as a bit of an avatar for what happened at the end of the 60s or what I think happened at the end of the 60s. And which traces this thing outwards from the United States around the world and where you start getting artists all around the world who are engaging with current affairs and topics in a much more direct, active way. And for example, you you could talk about Bob Marley or you could talk about Fela Kuti in 
Nigeria or all over the place. There are and lots of people in European countries as well. There are loads of people. Um, Victor Hara uh, is Chilean. He was uh, a huge figure. So he was a very successful was, artist. Was, so in this, was this... So Chilean in this period, was this sort of Pinochet? So, is, so what's going to happen that I'm about to tell you is Pinochet. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Pinochet is about to happen. Um, Victor, uh, so like in 1972, Pablo Neruda wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, who's a Chilean poet. And he comes home and it's Victor Jara who directs a ballet and a huge mu- musical homage to welcome him home to welcome his arrival. So Victor Hara at that point under the Allende government in Chile is a an establishment figure. He's a major name. He's probably as, as big in Chile as, as Dylan was in the States, although not maybe, I don't know, that's, that's possibly pushing it. But what happens is on the 11th of September, 1973, the Pinochet um, coup happens. Uh, CIA CIA-backed coup that destroys the Allende government and Pinochet becomes the new dictator of Chile. And um, by the 16th of September, 1973, so what's that, five days later, Victor Hara has been murdered. And what happens to him here is... Oh, wow. So so it was basically just went through and got rid of anybody... Yeah, any any prominent leftist, any prominent intellectuals, Lots and lots of public figures, but he was one of the the biggest names that they. It's 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 what I'm trying to get across is that this is a mainstream star that is then dragged into the national stadium with thousands of other people, and he gets his hands kind of chopped off or beaten senseless, and then the soldiers sort of joke, "Oh, sing one of your songs now," and he starts singing an a cappella song, and then they shoot him. Wow, wow. Okay, yeah. Um... Um, so what's the, the song? The song is A de Salambra, and it's a song from a little bit earlier, uh, and it's uh, just a beautiful, uh, kind of just wanted an avatar of an example of this kind of music taking flight from a different from a different kind of a global perspective, so a different sound and a, a bit more of a Latin American feel. Yeah. I, and it sort of translates to sort of to be un, untwined, to be untied up, to, to yes. be free, basically. Yeah. So we've had unions, we've had um, Jim Crow era race, um, we've had um, political dissent in in, in Latin America, um, and we've had you know the Cold War, etc. I mean, what has been almost lacking from this is the classic rallying point for most of what would be known as protest songs, and that's well Vietnam, and that's where we sort of enter now. Yeah, right? it all comes together. We're at the tail end of the sixties, and these various forces of protest. And again, it's, it's the United States have, have kind of joined forces in huge movements that are, are genuinely impacting great social change, but are also still very violent front lines and all sorts of stuff is going on. I love Roberta Flack. Uh, the first two or three albums. I don't really like anything that happens once we get later in her career. Um, I don't. I just don't enjoy them. Compared to what is the song I chose? It's the opening track of her debut album, which is called First Take. For me, so musically, this is this is the ninth song of our ten, but this is kind of the closing song because the tenth song will be a sort of coda. And for me, this is the point where the sixties protest thing sort of ends. Um, this is. The obvious thing to have done here would have been to play Marvin Gaye, what's going on. But what Roberta Flack has done is preempted what's going on and the invention of conscious soul. She's she's there a good 18 months, two years before Marvin Gaye with this debut album. And uh, she's been playing in Washington, D.C. in a club. She's very young. She's classically trained, similar to Nina Simone. She's not famous yet, but she's the sort of artist that whenever big names are in Washington, D.C., they'll kind of go and show up at her club after hours. She's got, she's spellbinding live performer, absolutely spellbinding. And she's mainly doing covers of, and she's drawing covers from all different parts of the traditions we've talked about. So for example, she even does the English political folk singer, Ewan McCall, 
his love ballad, First oh, really? Time There I Saw Your Face. So that's a song that comes out of the English 60s folk revival that Roberta Flack makes on that debut album into probably the, the best known version of that song. And it's a love ballad, so it's not a political thing at all. And there's, I mean, there's also a thing that can be said that, I mean, probably the vast majority of protest songs about Vietnam um, were from Black yes. America. Um, there's the album, the compilation, the soldiers, soldiers, sad yeah, that's story. An amazing record. Um, that yeah. My co-host, my co-host on um, temporary fandoms, Nick has, has banged on about to me several times and you just hear and politically different, different singers singing in different ways, but basically Vietnam through the black American experience. And as you said, we've got what's going on and we've got Roberta Flack yet people think protest against Vietnam. Oh, white hippie guys with a guitar. Yeah. And there is some of that, but the much more you've got, you've got like, uh, Oh, what's his name? You've got like Arlo Guthrie and people like that. But, but the far more interesting stuff is what you're describing. So the other uh, artist of conscious soul at the time is Bill Withers. And he's a tiny, I mean, a tiny bit later, but he's, he does, um, I can't write left-handed. And that's one of the most incredible songs specifically about the, the black soldier experience at Vietnam and uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it is, it's, and, it, and it's partly why it, it works as a sort of finishing point, but it also works as a, as everything combined because you can't, you no longer have the performative thing of someone like Dylan being able to be a step distanced from it and just sing about things. Like he still does that. He'll still tell stories about other people who've had a traumatic time. But once you've got someone like Roberta Flack or someone like Bill Withers, they're talking direct, they're much more, they're much closer yeah. to the action. The genie's out yes. of the bottle, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, what, you can't get the authenticity yeah. back if you are telling the story of, <laughs> and then people go, "Well, here's my story," and you go, "Oh, can I tell it?" Oh, this doesn't. And yet, no. there's criticisms of her at the time for for not being radical enough and for being too kind of polite and folksy and oh, and. No. Um, yeah, but there's there's always there's always I imagine she got criticized from from people who were less radical telling her to to probably say shut up mind your plate you know blah 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 and then you got criticisms from people who were more radical going come on you need to be more radical no one's ever left or right enough for yeah, whoever that's the very next true yeah you know? <laughs> um she on the same album she covers um Leonard Cohen as well so she's uh, uh, the what's it the that's a is it the thing the way to say goodbye? I can't remember the song title. Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. Okay. That's what it is, isn't it? Well, this is well. Um, we're going to go with what compared. Yeah, compared it's to what? And as you said, it's the first. It's the first song of her yeah. first album, similar to when we looked at Joan Baez yeah. as well. So that people are coming in and strong. It's the, here, so. it's the it's a live recording, except that they've added a bit of brass to it afterwards. So she recorded the whole album like as a live show and then and then the producers went off and added a bit of brass and strings here and there so there are and this is and we'll get to why we're referring it to as sort of as a coda in a bit um jumping forward quite quite a distance um sometimes in history there are moments of television that truly truly shocked people at the time and even though they sort of disappear a little bit into history um i rewatched this on sunday evening i went oh my god i cannot even imagine and then i quickly read up and reading the producers were running down the stairs and no applause signs were going up i mean we've got saturday night live America's big prime time and occasionally controversial, but relatively safe uh, comedy show. We've got what, 19? 19, it's 19, it's uh, October 92, 3rd of October 92. And we've got Sinead O'Connor coming on, um, singing what? So she's just broken through to be this huge star with uh, Nothing Compares to You. Uh, the Prince cover, uh-huh. which has been a global smash hit, and the really iconic video. She's uh, young, very young, with a shaven head, and she sings it all in one take into the camera, and she cries during the take, and it becomes this really yeah. iconic, uh, what what we call <laughs> hugely viral hit. Um, so she's on Saturday Night Live, and what she sings is an a cappella cover of Bob Marley's song War. 
But that was about... Right, so this is where it gets interesting. Bob Marley's song, War, was a protest song about war, but she's not there protesting war. No, so there's a line in the song that references child abuse. And so although it's not specifically a child abuse song, there's there's a line... I can't remember the line, but there's a line about hurting children. And she turns to the camera and very deliberately and forcefully rips up a photograph of the Pope on camera and then throws the pieces of the photograph at the camera. And bear in mind, it's live TV and she used a different image in the rehearsal. So they didn't know that she was going to do it. Nobody knew she was going to do it. So it's a genuine act of mass protest in front of a mass mainstream audience that, as you said, you're totally right. At the time, it was incredibly shocking. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. I was reading, and they, they, they went, "Should we cut? Yeah. Should we go to commercials?" And they went, "Just, just turn the lights down. No applause sign, and it's it's deathly silence." I mean, we'll link to the we'll link to the clip uh, in the episode description, or just yeah, just Connor SNL. I mean, she wasn't invited back, so I think there was only one Saturday Night Live performance. Um, so yeah, so what happened so, next? To the reason I wanted to use this song. And the reason it it works in a kind of a really wonderful way of showing how far things had changed. It's a couple a couple of decades has gone by since most of the stuff we were talking about. Is that two weeks later she performs at a live concert that's also filmed for TV, which is a tribute to Bob Dylan. So loads of mainstream big rock stars are doing different covers of Bob of Bob Dylan songs. And because she's this new superstar, she's been invited to perform a Bob Dylan song with the house band. She's going on after Chris Christopherson. She's the artist due on after her is Neil Young. You know, by by this time, the early nineties, these stars have gone on to be these kind of big rock kind of rock establishment stars. And she's the young ingenue. But of course, two weeks before, she offended huge swaths of America by doing what she did. So she walks out on stage at what ought to be a liberal progressive audience of Bob Dylan fans, and they massively are booing her. There is footage of this as well on YouTube. So I'd really recommend that they pair really well. If you look at the Saturday night live footage and then look at this footage, it is absolutely stunning. What she does is she soaks up the the crowd we're talking about a really young woman still in her early twenties. She soaks up the crowd and then the band is trying to start whatever Dylan song she's supposed to be performing, but they can't. And eventually they, there's a couple of false starts while she's just stood there. And then eventually she tells them don't start. And there's a keyboard player. She just says, don't just stop. Then she walks back and she does the same song, but it's kind of shouted this time. She she sort of shouts the Bob Marley song up until the line about children and then she leaves the stage and she sort of runs off stage into Chris Christopherson's arms. And he says, um, I think he says, don't let the bastards get you down, which is slightly caught on mic. I can't remember if that's true. Maybe I've made that up, but I think he says that. No, no, that rings a bell. I've heard that. That I just, I couldn't remember whether it was Chris Christopherson or Neil Young or who, 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 who yeah, it's, it's definitely Chris Christopherson who holds her while she's crying. But uh, I wanted to finish with it in terms of thinking about the way 60s protest worked and what, what it did, what, where it came from, which was, as you said, you said really well earlier, that it comes from this real genuine firsthand, like, like slavery and these things that affected people's lives completely. But it, but it did become rock music. It became this, yeah. this absolutely hugely commodified 70s juggernaut of a genre which was rock and then and then to have someone like Sinead O'Connor throw that back so powerfully and genuinely protest yeah, something genuinely protest something of real protest and of course it's this is all happening a decade before Pope John Paul II even acknowledged that child abuse was happening so her her passionate protest is about something that now we know came to pass was a global scandal of absolute huge proportion that the the Catholic church was turning a blind eye on an enormous industrial scale to child abuse of the most brutal sort. And 
Yeah, and and she felt so strongly about it that she took her newfound stardom and basically gambled, gambled it all. Yes. Could have gambled yeah. it all Shred, away. Shredded it, really. Yeah. 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 Well, I think there's nothing more that can be said. She had a Connor war. Even though this will date the podcast horrendously, um, as we're just coming back to record this, we just realized that Mark Lanigan died uh, today. Um, so that's not great. That's devastating. Um, but, really sad. Wow. But we we still have to wrap yeah. this thing up. Um, Chris, thank you ever so much for coming on. Thank you for, for bringing a, a, an amazingly diverse uh selection of songs and a really good story um it's been it's been really fascinating and this is probably the longest one we've had um thank you so much for having me (laughs) you and it's been really fun i'm i'm almost frustrated at myself because there's so much more that i wish we could do something on different eras of protest stuff or something completely different. So I hope, I hope I haven't screwed my chances of coming back on at a later date and talking about something else. No, 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 absolutely. I had a really lovely time chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Before you go, I mean, um, you're now sort of sending out, you're you're in the Substack crowd, right? for the moment, yeah. Um, Sending out um, stuff, um, border crossing. Yeah, border crossing. Border crossing. Yes. Border crossing. Stack.com. Put the links in uh, the, the doobly-doo below. And if you don't know what Substack is, sign up. You get stuff in your email. And then if you want to pay people who write stuff, you can pay people who write stuff because no one gets paid for anything anymore. So hopefully we're going back that way these days and people are starting to realize that. I was just you know, desperately scrounging around for money. things where I could give people stuff for nothing, but also monetize it if they wanted to, which is the the, the sort of vague attempt at a solution, isn't it? That's yeah. what we do. It's That's exactly the same, do. but for words. If you want to, if you, <laughs> if you want to support, if you want to support uh, Chris, then go to bordercrossing.substack.com. If you want to support us, um, go to our homepage in frequency.co.uk. There'll be links to our Mixcloud where you can either subscribe for the, Two ninety nine a month, or just tip. I mean, no one does, but it's nice for the few that do. You know, keep the lights on for a bit. Um, all right. So, as I said, um, while we were recording this, we just discovered that Mark Lanigan, Screaming Trees, uh, has passed. So we're probably just going to wrap up. Chris, thank you yeah, very much. Thank you so much. Look after yourself. Nice Bye-bye. one. Bye.